I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife. And we are the, the Flight Safety, Safety Detectives. Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host, John, has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and go-team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legend of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Well, John, we're back again with another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. That's been another fun-filled month for travel for both you and I. We had the opportunity to participate the beginning of February in an airline symposium in Washington, D.C., put on by an airline-centric law firm who does a very good job of bringing together folks in the industry, attorneys, of course, and then uh, the insurance folks, airlines from all over the world, and other aviation-represented organizations to highlight some of the more current issues that are taking place in aviation. And uh, you and I sat on a panel where we had the opportunity to discuss uh, Lion Air and Ethiopia and the fact that a lot of these folks, and there was probably 500 in the audience, who didn't realize what you and I have been talking about for some time and, of course, really dissected in our podcast with regard to MCAS, the purpose, the certification, and things like that. And I'm hoping that, you know, this message is now starting to filter out to get people's attention that there's always a backstory. You have to look at the backstory. You have to look at the facts, conditions, and circumstances and really identify the root causes, not just the obvious cause or the politically motivated cause. And I'm glad that we were able to provide input in that conference. I think it was uh, beneficial. Uh, I heard positive feedback. And of course, we're still hearing positive feedback on our podcasts regarding the dissection of the Lion Air report. And people are anticipating what we're going to do and say once the Ethiopian Airlines report comes out. Yeah, I hope the Ethiopian report is is a little more in-depth with some human factors research and looking at the regulatory authorities. I'm not holding my breath, but I'm, I'm hoping that they yeah. do expand it. It's going to be interesting because there was an article that just came out that the DOTIG is now going to audit airline training programs. Now, that can be a plus or it can be a minus. The fact that it's been driven by Congress kind of worries me because the last time Congress stuck their nose into aviation issues, especially a major aviation issue, we ended up with a 1,500-hour rule that basically isn't worth its salt. It isn't doing what Congress thinks that it would have done or should be doing. And it's really hurt the aviation industry here in the United States because it's put a huge burden on a lot of the smaller airlines who get pilots 
who are coming up through the ranks and are able to fly in the regional carriers up until that 1,500-hour rule came into play, the ab initio programs. And, and so now I'm worried that they're going to start looking at airline training because they're using the 737 MAX issues. And unfortunately, I still believe they don't understand the MAX issues, the MCAS and everything else. And they're going to go in with the wrong premise in their auditing of these airline training programs and create just havoc with some of these airlines who are predominantly 737 operators. Uh, that they are. You're never safe when politicians get involved in any, any subsistent what? issue. And the fact that you and I spent so much time up on the Hill trying to educate them and they basically ignored us. So now who else are they going to ignore and what information are they going to ignore? You know, this is a perfect opportunity, not that we're tooting our own horn, but you and I bring some objectivity to that kind of process. The DOTIG being the feds are, of course, going to use their federal resources, the FAA and, and others. But somebody's got to be more neutral. Now, the NTSB, I wouldn't add them in because of what they failed to do with the Lion Air report. And what I'm really concerned about is now the Ethiopian report. And as you and I have talked, the protocols of Annex 13 weren't followed to the letter of the law in either the Lion Air or the Ethiopian accident. So I'm really concerned that if they try to get the NTSB involved, they may participate with some level of expertise, but they're not going to have a critical eye like you and I have had thus far in these issues. You know, speaking about the feds and what they're doing, have you had a chance to go through this IG report that came out a couple of days ago? Yes. The inspector general's office came out with a, a scathing report of Southwest Airlines and the FAA due to some issues with uh, Southwest procedures and, and the fact that they've been operating airplanes overweight, they've got uh, their safety management system has major issues. It just is bewildering to me, John, because Southwest seems to be in the news for the wrong reasons. They had multiple issues several years ago where they were overrunning airworthiness directives and basically their processes and procedures came into question the fact that the faa's oversight came into question then of course they had the catastrophic engine failure again for the wrong reason they made the news unfortunately there was a fatality with that accident and now this and the question is what's going on with southwest airlines and the FAA down in the Southwest region. That's really intriguing. You know, that FAA office has been in trouble in the past because of their being cozy with the airline. In fact, one of the, uh, the, one of the managers down there, if I remember right, retired and uh, immediately went to work for Southwest, and he had chosen his replacement. So he would be interfacing with his replacement the day after he left his job. So that calls into question immediately. Who does that... PMI, POI, but I forget what it was, principal inspector for that certificate in the region, how much of a, of a push was he going to put on Southwest when the guy who got him the job is the person he's talking to from Southwest? And you used the term, John, cozy relationship. The FAA is under scrutiny right now for having this characterization of a cozy relationship with Boeing and the certification of the MAX and that kind of thing. 
And now we see that this kind of relationship is in the news again, except now it's between the FAA and an air carrier. While the FAA process is a little different because of designated representatives in the engineering and airworthiness areas and and certification is so much different than just operation. The big thing is what is going on with that type of relationship? Why is it that the FAA hasn't gone in there with a team after the first event where they were overrunning ADs to see if, in fact, that that office in the southwest region, are there issues? Are there oversight issues? Are there things that are going on? Why didn't they go in and audit them? Yeah, they did go in for a little bit. They sent a team in. I don't think they stayed long enough, and I don't think they were looking in the right areas. It's not just the uh, AD overrun. It looks like it's it's more widespread, especially this baggage issue. It was across their whole system. They couldn't get a handle on the weights of their baggage. And, you know, some of them, according to, the, to that report, there was anywhere between 300 and 7,000 pound discrepancies between... John, how can that... How can that be? I mean, don't every, every major airline has the ability to weigh the baggage going on their aircraft. What's going on with Southwest? I mean, we're not hearing it with any of the other carriers. Yeah, I know. And they've automated it. I mean, you see uh, today, right at the time you put the bag on the scale, if you're checking it at the uh, ticket counter, the weight's being automatically plugged in. So it's beyond me on uh, how they get themselves so out of sync. That's a critical issue. The fact that if you don't know what the weight of the aircraft is, how is the crew supposed to determine the aircraft performance, especially for takeoff? Because you're operating, at least Southwest is operating at airports that don't have real long runways, or I should say some of their airports don't have real long runways. They don't have 10 and 12,000 foot runways. And so the takeoff performance is absolutely critical based on weight. It determines, you know, what what, uh, airspeed the crew will rotate the airplane to get it to fly. It has a uh, severe impact on accelerated stop distance. If for whatever reason the crew has to abort on takeoff, you want to make sure you still have enough pavement out in front of the airplane to get the airplane stopped. Let's not forget stopping on landing. I mean, especially with a contaminated runway, you have to take that into consideration. And we've had two overruns with Southwest, and I don't know if they're related or not, but they certainly call into question the landing computations that said they could get into there, particularly the one in Chicago Midway. A 5,000-foot runway contaminated with snow and ice, and they run off the end and kill somebody on a roadway with the airplane. Now, the NTSB did an investigation on that, but I'll guarantee you that they didn't do the weights on the baggage because of the fact that nobody's been having problems with the weights. So this was a sleeper, and uh, the NTSB didn't dig in and weigh all the baggage to see if that was accurate, if the aircraft weight was accurate. So it uh, defies description sometimes what gets away well, from the, you in, during accident investigations. And the thing about this, John, is that you know assumptions and expectations, whether it's in operation of the aircraft or the investigation of an accident, will hurt you or kill you in one way, shape, or form. You can't assume that just because it's an airline, they've done everything right. And you and I spent enough time at the board to know that you have to look at everything, even if it isn't obvious, or even if you don't think that it had some sort of factor contributing or causal in the event. Well, that's why we have a 
set of procedures and you followed them all the time. I wonder if they did not follow them on this particular case. It appears that that, that may be the case. And the IG also pointed out some deficiencies or shortcomings or issues with Southwest's safety management system. And for those that don't know what the SMS system is, it's basically a program that has been instituted to really identify proper policies, procedures, and processes that throughout the entire company tries to not only standardize how business is conducted in the respective parts of the air carrier, but it also provides baselines for doing audits so that you can determine performance. That is, are you performing above a baseline, below a baseline? Where are there deficiencies? The identification of hazards that could potentially lead to an, a serious incident or accident. So it's a, it's a whole systematic process that's being instituted, not only in the airlines, but into business aviation at airports and other organizations uh, that are aviation-related. Even, even so, outside of aviation, hospitals have now started correct, to, take, yes. to take a safety management in. And, you know, it's, the real premise with safety management is, The guys that drive the company, the real management of the company, it is not possible for them to know all the bits and pieces of the operation underneath them. And safety management systems is a process that allows all the way down to the lowest person in the the organization to plug in their concerns and feed it back up through the chain so that it'll be reviewed. And if it needs change, it'll get changed. And after it gets changed, it'll get measured again to make sure that the change is effective. It's an ongoing process. It just doesn't end at the suggestion box, so to speak. It is actually one that continues to go and go and go. I portray it like a big circle. You know, you just identify a problem, you fix the problem, you measure the problem, and if it didn't fix it, then you do it again. You put another fix in place and keep on going around and around until the problem goes away. And these are the same issues that are being brought up with Boeing in their aircraft build and certification process, identically. You know, the fact that they aren't getting robust feedback from the guys who are doing the work, and when they do bring these issues to a higher level, they're either ignored or not acted upon in a timely manner. And so this process, this SMS process is valuable in, like you said, turning the circle, getting as much information as possible up to the the highest levels of management who are the decision makers, who can, in fact, implement or affect change in the organization to enhance aviation safety. Yes, it's a really good tool. It can be very effective, but it requires everybody to play. And in Southwest Airlines, in their past several years, they've had a major battle going on with their mechanics, which is a key element in the safety equation. And to have this kind of battle going on and non-participation from that larger crew where the information on maintenance issues resides, it just makes your SMS system dysfunctional. And how the FAA didn't step in earlier and get all over Southwest about their SMS program, and if they didn't fix it, the FAA would have to pull their SMS system, which changes a lot of things, not only for the airline, but it changes things for the FAA as well, because it changes the level of surveillance that they would have to provide. And maybe that's the the reason why the FAA didn't do it, because maybe they felt they didn't have the resources to elevate the surveillance of Southwest, and they chose to ignore it. 
which is which is criminal because they, they raised a risk on so many people. So that prompts a couple of questions then. One, why are the mechanics pushing back? I mean, they know the importance of an SMS program. So why are they pushing back on something that really can be a good tool for them? They did push back. They sent letters to the FAA. They've taken out advertisements, informational advertisements in some publications. They have been very vocal about the problems on Southwest and things that weren't done in you know, Southwest had a lot of maintenance delays when the mechanics started to follow the book before the supervisor stepped in and overrode them, so to speak. And what was the response from the FAA when they were told about these things from from at least the maintenance side of the house? I mean, <laughs> they, they can't just ignore it. I mean, I would hate to see if they responded with a letter saying, thanks for your interest in aviation safety, but we're not going to do anything. And that's essentially what they did, not with the letter, but they ignored it. They just let it continue, let it fester. You know, part of the reason why that happens is, too, that the FAA has a long history of not getting involved when there's disputes, labor disputes between an employee group and the company. They they not only take a backseat, they leave the vehicle. But when, when you have a labor dispute like this that technically relates to the entire company, not just one specific internal organization of the company, you would think that, you know what, yeah, this is a labor issue, but maybe we should just quality control this to see if, in fact, there's some validity here, rather than just say, it's a labor issue, we're not getting involved, see ya. Yeah, well, I agree with you, but that's not the action that seems to be taken regularly. I know Nick Sabatini one time sent additional people in for one uh, air carrier that was having uh, labor problems. He sent some additional people in for oversight, but that's the exception rather than the rule. And now with Steve Dixon coming into the picture from the airline, yes, he was on the operations side, but he does have that kind of airline operational knowledge. Do you think this is going to get more traction? I sure hope so. I mean, that's, that's the role of the FAA. You know, it's not to be pro-company or pro-labor. It's supposed to ensure the safety of the traveling public. And in this case, with Southwest Airlines, the GAO says they put additional risk on 17 million passengers just because of the problems they had with the weight of the baggage. You can't understate that. That is a serious problem, especially on the, the heavier side of these weights. And you could get into these small airports and this airplane's not going to stop. A rain-slicked runway or a snow-covered runway, the outcome is not certain. You know, you can't, you're not, might not be able to stop. And we've seen just recently several airplanes overrun uh, runways around the world. Yeah. I mean, we had the one that one, went off the end of a, a very hilly area and went down the hill and broke up. We had just had another one uh, a couple of days ago that tore the nose gear off. And it just amazes me, John, that with all of the internal processes that an air carrier, especially here in the United States, has, all the resources, the tools, the fact that, the, you know, the airlines, yes, they are in competition, but when it comes to safety, there is no competition amongst the airlines. They share information. They're talking to each other. I just don't understand how something like this could go on for as long as it did. And one, there weren't any internal processes to trap line these issues before somebody came in to have, you know, did an audit and found all of these issues. I mean, that just, it makes no sense in this day and age. Well, you know what? There's a piece of uh, what I've been seeing 
not just at uh, Southwest, but I've been seeing across the board of complacency creeping in. We have been so good for so many years in this business with safety and, and avoiding problems, and especially crashes, that we really are resting on our laurels. We need to reinvigorate the workforce and get back to following procedures and making sure that the procedures that we follow are the correct procedures, well-written and well-understood. There's a whole host of, of issues just around procedures, but we need to get back to it because I see complacency everywhere. I see it in the corporate side. I see it in the GA side pretty prominently. We're seeing it in the, in the major airlines too. We're too good for too long. Every well, it will be all right. We can do this. We're gonna be all right. It does. Yeah, it's not the it's not the procedure, but we've done it before. We can do that. It is just bewildering that this again. Okay, so now the FAA slaps their hand and fines them, you know, several million dollars. A lot of times that fine is negotiated down, and really. What impact does it have? Because we've seen those kinds of fines levied against a variety of different airlines in the past, and yet some are very good. They've changed their ways. And then others are repeat offenders. It doesn't seem to have the impact, if you will, and the, the force of law to force them to make the changes that need to be made. They just, eh, whatever, we'll pay it. It's the cost of doing business. Yeah, they go in and negotiate it. The, the rule of thumb that I've heard from the attorneys that do this is uh, 10 cents on the dollar is what they typically end up paying. So if they got a $3.5 million fine, I think that's what the Southwest was. So they're going to end up paying 350000 I mean, that's insignificant. Yeah. I mean, again, it's the cost of doing business. And, and how is that going to force change? That's I mean, not, unless, it's, it's gone. unless you ramp up FAA oversight and you start getting rid of people who aren't doing their job or are complacent in doing their job, reassigning people, sending a very strong message, this kind of stuff is going to continue to go on. And, and the rest of the industry is going, well, if those guys can get away with it. Hell, so could we. That's true. They start complaining to their local FAA guy that it's a competitive advantage, especially with Southwest and American in the same FISDO. And they compete head-to-head yes. head with one another. Pretty hard for the office manager there if the other airline comes in and says, hey, you guys let Southwest get away with this. I want to do the same. And given what you just said about them being co-located in the same office down in the FAA, I mean, would they go in and look at American Airlines and see what's going on with them? Because it is an office issue, possibly, and not just an airline-specific issue? Well, this GAO report focused only on the southwest side of that office. So that region, it's all the southwest region. So we'll have to wait and see what happens on the other side of it. The weights and the SMS are two pieces of a, of a puzzle that really has four pieces to it. The other big piece is this 88 airplanes, I think it was, that were allowed to be put on certificate in one day. How can that be? <laughs> How can that be? I mean, I'm not very conversant in, in that total process. You're more conversant since you worked for an airline. But how, I mean, you just, okay, yeah, here are all the end numbers. Yep, put them all on because, you know, they're all the same. Yep. Well, they didn't even have end numbers. They came from five different countries. 23 came from China. 14 came from Canada. 14 came from Argentina. 10 came from Russia. Nine came from Mexico. So right off the bat, there's 33 airplanes there that I would have red flags all over 
and those are the ones from Mexico, Russia, and Argentina. The Canadian ones will probably all right. The China ones, well, you better be checking. Well, the big thing here is that with all of those various airlines and those airplanes, every airplane coming out of Boeing or Airbus or Embraer or Bombardier are not created equal. Every airplane is different. Airlines, they are the ones that set the standard for the configuration in the cockpit. We saw that with Switzology and and a variety of other things quite a long time ago. But when you have a mixed fleet like that and you're trying to standardize things, there may not be the things that Southwest has on their airplane direct from Boeing versus coming by way of a Russian carrier or a China carrier. And then more to your point, the bigger thing is maintenance and making sure that those aircraft are really in a state of airworthiness that meets our requirements, not Russia's, not China's, or some of these other third world places like Indonesia. I would be all over an Indonesian airplane. After Lion Air, I would definitely be all over that airplane. Uh, 71 of these 88 airplanes were approved the same day the FAA gave them permission to start the review process. The FAA is supposed to look at the initial paperwork and then give you permission to continue the review. Now, I know everybody fudges that a little bit. I've been involved with ones where we started it because the FAA indicated that there would be no problem. They'd get right back to us, and uh, we would start the review process. It's not a simple review. You need to go in on the engines and ensure that the time-controlled components on that airplane are, in fact, by serial number there. And there's other components that you check by serial number that they're there. There's AD notes, airworthiness directives. Those are mandatory repairs that the FAA says have to be accomplished. Sometimes they're inspections, sometimes they're actual repairs. And those have to be verified. You have to go in and look to see if they did, in fact, have a repair in that area. And then you will spot check those that are just inspections. You will spot check and do that inspection over again to make sure that there was nothing found, that they did, in fact, do that inspection. So it's it's quite a process. On a small business airplane, I'm talking about a Learjet-sized airplane, it takes three weeks to a month to do it, unless you've got 20 people working on it, climbing all over it, climbing over each other, too, trying to get it all done. It takes a lot to, to make that determination. And here so they did discussion 70... then prompts another question, and that is, is it just because the FAA has gotten complacent and or is it because they don't have enough manpower resources to accomplish the job? Well, if you ask the FAA region, that, that, that uh, certificate holding office, I'll guarantee you they tell you you don't have the people. Now, typically, the designees that are approved by those offices are retired FAA people. Not 100%, but usually a good majority of them are retired FAA airworthiness inspectors or operations inspectors or avionics inspectors. So they're doing the work. So I'm sure that there's some complacency between those two groups on the part of the FAA. But 71 airplanes in the same day, that's unbelievable. Now, if you had 700 designees, so you had 10 per airplane, and you've already done a couple of days work prior to that, uh, the, the bell going off where you're supposed to start then, you probably could have got it done. But Having uh, 700 designees in a given office is unheard of. They would never have that. Yeah. So this, this raises a big red flag. This report also raises that. They had to go back and do some of this work over again. 
but they, ironically, the FAA let them continue to fly these airplanes with unknown airworthiness conditions. That's unheard of, too. And now, even after the carrier has been notified of these findings, and or at least the FAA has allowed them to fly, what's the safety concern for the flying public? I mean, I know personally that <laughs> if I had that kind of knowledge, I'd be real leery about getting on an airplane because you and I have seen even the most minor airworthiness issues propagate into catastrophic issues. You know, the small cracks that, you know, yeah, it's okay. It's just a small crack in the fuselage. Well, small cracks in the fuselage lead to bigger cracks in the fuselage and the top coming off an airplane. Well, didn't we have like that, that. Southwest had that coming out of someplace in uh, West Arizona or something. It, didn't, it landed in Yuma, I think. I'm going by memory, but Southwest had one. And they, yeah. they called into question the Southwest inspection program. That's a, a whole other ball of wax, too because Southwest maintains these airplanes. The heavy maintenance visits on these airplanes are all done in South America. And you and I have had these discussions in the past, well before we started the podcast, about contract maintenance outside the United States and the quality or lack thereof of the, these heavy maintenance inspections and work being done that's being farmed out to countries where labor is cheaper, so the inspections are cheaper. Yeah, let's not forget that that Lion Air accident, the maintenance on that airplane was all done by a third-party provider. Even though that third-party provider was owned by the same individuals that own Lion Air, it was a separate company. There's separate rules, so it doesn't matter that they were owned by the same parent company. They're run as two independent organizations. That in itself should have additional safeguards put on it. But it was obvious it didn't because they would have picked up what we picked up in the month prior to the accident. Yeah. Nav exterior light. Servo control. Engine start panel. What do you think at least the next step of this is? I know that Southwest is going to have to fix or correct these issues. What are the IG or what's the FAA going to give them as far as time? I mean, you can't let this go on for you know, a year, two years. I mean, I know that the, the airline may cry about the fact that if we take all these airplanes out of service or we do this or we do that, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a uh, very expensive endeavor. But you can't keep those airplanes in service, especially trying to either build or rebuild the confidence of the public after knowing what they know now based on this report. Yes. Some of the recommendations uh, for the FAA to make sure that Southwest Airlines complies with regulatory requirements. Dura, they were supposed to do that already, all right? Retain inspectors for the local oversight office for the uh, Southwest Airlines and go over their voluntary disclosure program, you know, and we didn't even talk about that. But there is a process in place that the FAA put in a long time ago that says that if you, in the course of your daily operation, if you find yourself being in violation of one of the FAA rules, that you can call up the FAA and say, hey, we just found out that we are in violation, and the FAA will take no punitive action against you. They require you to give a, a full report on how you're going to correct it and how you're going to make sure that it's not going to happen again, but they won't fine you and they won't take enforcement action is what it's called. So there was a lot of voluntary disclosures, repeat voluntary disclosures from Southwest, and that was raised in this report 
the FAA is supposed to train their managers and inspectors in those local offices so that they understand their roles and responsibilities. That's another one. What do you mean train them now? They're supposed to. When you get those jobs, you go to Oklahoma City to be trained. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This on-the-job training, wait a minute here. That's not, that's not the way it's supposed to work. That's why you were hired in the first place. Yeah, when they hire you, the first several months you're spending in Oklahoma City where they go through oceans of training. And I've been through some of that, and that's damn good training. But boy, it, the way they're saying it here it was totally ignored. It was almost like they never went. <laughs> it's like... You know, hiring an air traffic controller, putting him in a tower, and then sending him to training after he's had a little bit of experience. Makes no sense. Well, you know, the big thing is you read one thing, and that was retain inspectors in that certificate office. Are they having a turnover problem? They did replace a lot of those people, reassign, I should say, a lot of those people a couple of years ago when they turned that office upside down because of previous coziness. I mentioned the one with the the manager who left and his replacement, suddenly they were interfacing with one another with the manager now being Southwest and the person he handpicked to replace him being the FAA's voice. So that, that cozy relationship was should have raised big red flags. Now, we have stopped that now because now there's a two-year break. You can't leave the FAA and go to work for somebody for two years. That sort of pushed that off the table. But it's still, it's a tough job being an FAA inspector because you've got to balance all these things off. But you've got to keep in the front of your mind, in the forefront, that your job is to protect the traveling public and not to be critical of any side of the, uh, the rest of the equation. But you've got to take a very hard look at anything that would impact the safety of the traveling public with a 121 carrier, which is supposed to be the highest level of safety. So they really need to, to take that to heart and take a good look at these systems. And what that means is that they're going to have to be trained. They're going to have to be hands-on. They're going to have to go in and understand how a given carrier's maintenance program works. I'm using maintenance here, but it could be ops as well. Understand how that system works. They have to know it as good as the employees know it. And that's not always the case. Sometimes they even have to know it better than the employees so that they understand that if guys have found a way to circumvent some of those policies and procedures, they can readily identify it. And, you know, there are the, the tips and the tricks. You and I, <laughs> we've, when, we were in, um, when we were at a major carrier where we were on the, the hangar floor, I mean, guys are telling us what their workarounds are to expedite the work and things like that. And while it may not be illegal, it may not be absolutely approved, but in the efficiency of getting the work done and getting an airplane back out onto the ramp and into service, I mean, these guys are going to find that. And, and the inspectors are expected to go out there when they do their oversight inspections and identify, hey, what are you doing? Where is that in the manual? Where is that an approved procedure? Things like that. Yes. I mean, didn't that come about? I know that when the DC-10 lost the engine, you know, they were looking as, for a workaround where they wouldn't have to demate the engine from the pylon. They were trying to do it all at one time to expedite the process of doing, you know, an engine change or maintenance and that kind of stuff on an engine in the interest of time. And the FAA, you know, initially approved it or at least approved it for, for it to be done until we had an accident. 
And, yeah, it and wasn't they were pushing it they even further. Trying, they weren't trying to shortcut the system. They were trying to just find a more efficient way in the system. Right. And they didn't take into consideration the, the equipment that needed. I was very much involved with that one. That was a real tragedy because engineering was involved and engineering allowed some things to go on that shouldn't have been. So it was a lot of dirty hands and trying to trying to uh, get a job done faster. And, and admittedly, the engine change on a, on a wing engine on a DC-10 is a 24-hour adventure. I mean, an engine on a DC-9, we were changing those in four hours. So there's wow. just a difference. So it's, it's, uh, financially, it's a, a huge burden. So yeah. that's why they were trying to do it. But then they overstepped, the engineering overstepped what they were doing, and we ended up with 271 people, I think it was, that perished. Just as an aside... They grounded the airplane, and there was an AD out that they had to inspect all these other airplanes that were doing the same procedure. And it was something in the 20s, I forget the exact number, 20-something other airplanes were found to have cracked pylons because of that yeah. engine change procedure. So that was 20 other airplanes that were going to meet the same fate. And see, that is the importance of not only the carrier and the expertise that the carrier has in, in maintaining the aircraft, but that's really why we need the highest quality inspectors at the FAA, because it is these things where, yeah, on the surface it looks good. But again, we always talk about the backstory. And in that particular instance, the backstory was that the equipment wasn't proper for what they were trying to do. They didn't really think the engineering through completely. And so that is always going to be an issue that uh, requires the highest levels of subject matter expertise. Yeah, and it's not just that the process there, it's also the human factors involved. What's it take to do the job? Can we accomplish it? Do we have to be a monkey standing on our head to accomplish it? So there's all sorts of the other ergonomic side of it, as well as the human factors side. How long can we can work on a job? And the human factors as well with the FAA people. You know, they work nine to five mostly. But most of the maintenance is not done 9 to 5. It's done 10 or 11 o'clock at night until 7 in the morning. Where's their chance to touch the product? Unless the manager pushes them to go, well, working on midnight shift, they'll never come out. You and I both have a lot of friends at a lot of the carriers, including Southwest. And while, yeah, Southwest is being scrutinized right now, in no way, shape, or form do we do we mean to uh, imply that they are a bad carrier or anything else. I mean, carriers are going to have issues. In this particular instance, whatever back drove the basis for doing an IG investigation, we may not know all of the facts that, that drove that. But for all intent and purposes, you know, when you look at all the air carriers here in the United States that carry passengers for hire, yeah, there may be issues with our FAA and their oversight and their inspection programs and things like that. And yes, there may be some issues with the carriers themselves, but I'll fly on any carrier here in the United States over a lot of carriers outside the United States. Our worst carrier is better than their best carrier in some places. Good morning, John on the ground, Canadian 920. We're just coming up to Alpha Juliet. You had, a, you had an issue you wanted to raise, or we, a question we wanted to raise with everybody this time. Yep. You and I, and the reason it sounds like John and I are talking over each other is because I'm traveling. John's uh, in his warm, cozy office in Boston doing his thing, you know, hoping to survive. Aren't you guys expecting a snowstorm or something, John? We always get snow up here. We're used <laughs> yeah. to it. Yeah. 
so we're talking over each other because uh, I'm doing this remote because I'm on travel. But we talked about the Kobe Bryant accident. Uh, we tried to at least identify some of the issues and the factors that go into decision making. So for this week, we wanted to pose the question that uh, is part of our new segment, what would you do? And in this particular instance, there's been a lot of discussion about the fact that the operator of the helicopter was limited to conducting their flight operations in uh, the S-76 in VFR conditions only, which means that pilots have to use ground references for both navigation and, of course, orientation in space. That is turning right, turning left, up and down, things like that. While the aircraft are equipped with instruments so that if they get into instrument meteorological conditions, they can still operate the airplane by rule and the limitation on the certificate of the operator, a pilot could not knowingly go in and conduct a flight in IMC. So the question for what would you do is you work for a company, you know what the certificate limitations are, you've been flying high profile people for a long time. You have 8,000 hours of, of experience flying up and down the California coast. You know that the weather conditions along the California coast, especially in the L.A. basin, are subject to either getting better or getting worse, depending on where you are, what direction you're flying, because of marine fog and things like that. You have the customer on board with a lot of people, and they say, let's go. And now you get yourself into a situation where as you get near destination, the weather has gone down sufficiently, and you're trying to accomplish the mission. John, what would you do? Well, some of the options are to put it down. It's a helicopter. It's not an airplane. You know, and in this particular case, you're talking about the one in California. There was a sheriff's field not too far away from where they were when they still had visibility uh, to the ground. Another option would have been or could have been when you were talking to Burbank or even Van Nuys and they wouldn't let you into the airspace. What would your decision be at that point? Hmm, if they aren't letting me into the airspace, should I do the prudent thing and put the aircraft down? Or should I try and find an alternative to accomplishing the mission? The sorry state of affairs on, on that crash is that when he, when he turned around into the valley between Burbank and Van Nuys, he saw the ground. There was plenty of places to put the helicopter down, and they could have Ubered it to wherever they were going. One of the other debates, of course, is TAWS, the Terrain Awareness Warning System. People are saying, well, yeah, the helicopter wasn't equipped. That would have helped them. That would have prevented the accident. And I've talked to a number of professional helicopter pilots that, that fly in that type of arena, and they go, that wouldn't have helped them at all. It wasn't really necessary, you know, things like that. So as far as the question is concerned, we would like to hear, and you can send us an email uh, at our email at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com and give us your answer to what would you do if you were a pilot in the situation flying a high-profile client, they need to go from point A to point B, the weather is going down, and you now have to make the decision. Do I keep going? Do I land somewhere or do I go back all the way back to my base? So we would love to hear what you think you would do.
That's not quite as tough as the last question, but it still yeah. makes you think. Well, you know, we got to throw a softball question in there every once in a while. You know, I mean, we're going to start getting harder and harder. We're going to put people on the spot because several of the accidents that we're going to be dissecting coming up in future shows, the pilots had to make very complex decisions. And unfortunately, it was one piece of a complex decision that led to either their demise or at least a serious event. So we got to at least honor these folks and give them a softball every once in a while. But this is still a controversial subject because professional pilots, helicopter pilots who fly VFR go, I don't need TAWS. I can see the mountain. And if I can't see the mountain, then I'm not flying there. So, and I've heard from others that have had a differing point of view as well. And it's tough. It's tough on them. You know, human beings, put themselves under pressure. Sometimes carrying these high-profile passengers put you under pressure. Sometimes it's said, sometimes it's not said. But it's yep. it's a difficult position to be in. Well, Greg, I think we've done our job for this pe- episode. Yep, it's always good, John. We, <laughs> I know that uh, this is our opportunity to at least discuss you know, some of the, the more relevant and, and prominent issues. We always appreciate the feedback from the listeners, and I'll tell you, in the last couple months, we've been getting a great deal of emails. So please keep those emails coming. We've got suggestions for upcoming shows that people want us to talk about. So we're trying to incorporate those. John and I spend a lot of time trying to at least respond to every single email that comes in. So again, that's our feedback. That's our link to you, the listener. So we greatly appreciate that. And whatever podcast provider you're listening on please give us a rating good bad or indifferent i just responded to a guy who you know had some criticism and that's great i think that uh, there was some misunderstanding but you know that's what we appreciate because that makes john and i better in discussing the issues so again you can always reach out to us at flight safety detectives with an s at gmail.com and we look forward to hearing from you guys. And recently, uh, we've just sent out a number of wristbands for those folks that have responded to us by email. We've picked several emails and sent out our wristbands. There'll be other things that we're going to give away in the near future. And then lastly, we are always looking for sponsors and, of course, any kinds of donations from the listeners because John and I have to pay for the production of this podcast, which we absolutely don't mind doing, but we always appreciate the assistance of others who want to hear the the show keep going. And uh, as production costs go up, of course, you know, the requirements to pay for it also go up. So we always solicit those. You can go and, and contact us by way of PAMA, the professional Aviation Maintenance Association have a link there for donations and sponsorships and things like that. So with all that being said, John, I'm giving you the last word. Well, everybody, fly safe and talk to you soon. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to FlightSafetyDetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at PAMA.org. And wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening.